This is an episode I have been very excited about for two reasons. First is that it marks the end of our second rotation of episodes. Obscure, classic, weird, and children's books are cycled through to keep the podcast both predictable and fresh. Though we may change things up if listeners have certain requests, or if I need a change of pace. The second reason is that we're covering a book that is near and dear to my heart. I've read it several times, and I'm excited to share it with you. Let's see if it holds up to my nostalgia. Hello, Earthlings and Spacelings. Welcome to the Fantasy Podcast, the home of science fiction and fantasy books you'll probably never read. They're too old, too weird, or you already saw the movie. So what's the point? Let this be your guide. I'm your host, Erica Brickley, and I'm absolutely in love with books. Proof is available on my Instagram, at Erica Brickley, spelled E-R-I-K-A, B as in boy, R-I-C-K-L-E-Y. This is your friendly reminder to follow me there and subscribe to the Erica Brickley YouTube channel, where you can turn on the notification bell to be notified each time an episode is uploaded. With that out of the way, let's get started. For today's children's book, we are talking about This Time of Darkness by H.M. Hoover. Not to be confused with A Time of Darkness by Cheryl Jordan or This Thing of Darkness by Harry Thompson. (laughs) Here is what the author bio has to say. H.M. Hoover was born near Alliance, Ohio. I came from a long line of farmers, teachers, and an occasional minister, she says. Ms. Hoover has traveled extensively in the United States and has had ample opportunity to pursue her interests in natural history, history, and archaeology. She is the author of The Delicon, The Reigns of Eridan, The Lost Star, and Return to Earth, published by Viking. She lives near Washington, D.C. On the back of the book, there's another one. It says, H.M. Hoover is one of America's leading writers of science fiction for young people. She is the author of The Delicon, The Reigns of Eridan, The Lost Star, and Return to Earth, all for Viking. Miss Hoover lives near Washington, D.C., where she pursues her interests in natural history, archaeology, and history, as well as writing. At the moment, she is at work on a new novel. I have a few books by Hoover, whose full name was Helen Mary Hoover. I have The Reigns of Eridan and Only Child, and her work always seems to be about forming strong friendships despite obstacles or because of them, as well as seeing past the ways things seem to be. She might be most well-known for The Winds of Mars. I'd like to mention that I've had this book on my shelf for a long time. I'm pretty sure I got it from my local library book sale in middle school or high school. Aside from the usual library alterations, like the Dewey Decimal System sticker on the spine and the dust jacket taped on, along with the remnants of a price sticker, it's a beautiful hardback copy with a cover painted by Fran Stiles. Looking her up, I'm only seeing a book about wolves she illustrated, so I'm not sure what other books Styles has done. There is a lot to talk about regarding this cover. To start with, the background is a rich blue sky, highly saturated. This is where the title is, along with the line, A Novel of the Future. Below, a grassy landscape stretches to the horizon, where mysterious layers of aurora borealis colors build their way up to the sky. Front and center is the most important thing, Two children, a boy and a girl, running out of a metal tunnel. The inside of the tunnel is lit, but it goes so far back that it fades into obscurity and you can't see what's back there. Both children are dressed in pure white jumpsuits and red strap-on shoes. The boy on the left is running straight forward, looking urgent and serious. 
while the girl on the right can't help but look off to the side, perhaps in shock at what she's seeing outside of the tunnel. All we as the audience can see is that the tunnel seems to end in a random grassy place. Interestingly, there are three standard covers for this book, based on a Google Images search. There's the Fran Styles cover that I have, and two others that feature almost identical subject matter. It's hard to tell who painted them without having these copies in front of me, but somehow all three artists were inspired by the exact same moment of the story and picked up a lot of similar details. A boy and a girl dressed in white, leaving a tunnel and entering a grassy place. We'll leave it at that so as not to spoil anything. However, I will mention that I saw one more cover for This Time of Darkness that is super simple, like a low-budget ebook that I'm pretty sure features a photo taken on Alcatraz Island looking up between the cells at the skylights above. Any questions? Great, let's move on. Chapter 1 Amy sits at a desk in the dimly lit learning center with a room full of children aged 10 to 16 whose names start with the letter A. Learning Center B is next door, C is next to that, and so on. There are no windows, and the ceiling is low. Quote, the room smelled of unwashed bodies, stale food, and musty walls, unquote. She can hear the sound of water and imagines that it's rain, even though it's probably a broken pipe. Her neighbor Anita berates her for daydreaming, not knowing what rain is. You will have two hours to complete this test, the computer whispers then gives questions that have a one-word answer. Amy completes the test in 12 minutes, but she keeps her head down so the watcher camera won't notice. Glancing around, Amy sees that Anita is concentrating hard. Meanwhile, a neighboring boy called Axel doesn't bother, curled up in his seat. Both of them fit in, while Amy is constantly aware of the boredom, constantly aware of the cameras. She's never sure if she's alone, or if there are others like her keeping their heads down. Amy imagines going outside to a place with no ceilings, no walls, no hallways or ramps. When enough other kids have finished their exams and left, Amy leaves the learning center. Behind the camera, the watcher sees her go. He can tell Amy finished her exam quickly, that her learning comprehension is too good. Her file says this, Age 11, born on level 9, mother food prep tech, father unknown, no physical or mental dysfunctions. No recorded deviations. There is one worrying note. She can read. That's not a crime, but the government prefers that people of the lower levels remain illiterate to avoid unacceptable behavior. Amy has undergone corrective programming that's brought her down to normal levels, but he's suspicious that she's faking. The Watcher is also suspicious of Axel, who also leaves after kicking his desk terminal. Kids like that grow up to make trouble and the Watcher doesn't want any blame to find its way back to him for not catching it. In the hallway, Axel catches up to Amy, touching her arm to get her attention and smile, but just then an emergency car comes down the hall with its sirens screaming. Quote, the sound trapped and echoed against the low ceiling, unquote. Amy puts her ear guards down to black out the noise. Axel just freezes, his eyes go out of focus, and he talks to himself. She puts her ear guard up for a moment to hear him singing, Rufus the rabbit is going to sleep, down in his burrow where silence is deep. It sends a shiver up her spine despite the crowded, hot hallway. The crowds haven't stopped walking, and the two children get bumped and hit as they stand there. When the sirens fade, Amy gets Axel to start moving again, asking him about the test he didn't take. Why should I? he asks defiantly. 
They don't care what you know, so long as you don't cause problems. Amy points out that he might get sent to special programming. Then she asks why he doesn't have any ear guards. Bizarrely, Axel doesn't know how to get essentials, and does strange things like stopping in the hallways and leaning against the disgusting wall without thinking about it, jumping when she points out the cockroaches. How do you live this way? He whispers. Although he came after her, presumably to make friends, Axel's behavior is very odd, and his willingness to talk comes and goes. When he stops responding, Amy thinks about other things, like shops selling deep-fried vegetable peelings that smell salty, but she can't afford. She's used to letting go of things she can't have. Amy takes Axel to the depot to stand in line, insert their ID into the machine, and wait for their requested item to come down the chute. She holds his hand as they wait with lots of other people dressed in brown jumpsuits and thong sandals, hands and feet filthy. To distract Axel, Amy tells him what she was thinking about, rain. It's nice when it rains, he says wistfully. I didn't used to think so, but I do now. It's not like the irrigation mist. Rain comes in drops, all different sizes and speeds. Sometimes, when the wind blows, it rains so hard the roof sings. He's interrupted by an adult scolding him for talking like that. Several adults get involved, reminding the kids they're getting too old for silly stories about the outside. They joke about the boy coming from level 80 to spy on them. When the adults laugh, Amy suddenly becomes determined to see the outside for herself someday. Chapter 2 Amy and Axel continue on, now both wearing ear guards. She explains the stories about Level 80, how it's supposed to be, quote, a special place where everything is clean and light and there are no rats or roaches. The people who run things, the authorities, are supposed to live up there and have walls you can see through. They can see the sky and a whole lot of water called the ocean, unquote. However, she assures him she's never known anyone who's been more than five levels away from home. Axel really perks up after hearing this, but shuts down when Amy wants to hear more about Rain. He uses his ear guards to close her out, so Amy is surprised when he continues walking with her towards home, rather than to the ramps towards the youth shelter where he lives. The hallway of unmarked doors where Amy lives is like any other, next door to a fry shop and a man sleeping in a nearby hall. Why are all the crazies naked? Axel asks. The rats chew the food spots off their clothes while they sleep, Amy answers while using the fingerprint scanner on her door. If they put their clothes under them, the rats can't get at them so easily. Axel is delighted by the old, tiny apartment with faded pink walls where Amy lives with her mother, Valerie. There's a bunk bed, a sanite module door, a micro cooker and freezer, a little table with cable spools as chairs, a cracked TV screen, and a single light panel in the low ceiling. Aside from air vents, that's all there is to see. To Axel, the simple fact that there's no camera is a huge relief. He takes the opportunity to question Amy's knowledge of rain, and she reveals that when she was little, she and her mother lived with an old woman named Janet. Janet had a single book, a tattered children's encyclopedia, that she used to teach Amy to read. She's surprised that Axel also knows how. Though Amy doesn't want to go into detail about the painful memories, she thinks back to a time of relative happiness before Janet died and all her possessions were cleared out while Amy was at the learning center, including the precious book. Finally, Axel tells Amy his secret. He came from outside. Though she's surprised, Amy can't deny that it makes sense with all his oddities. 
He tells her the story of how he fell into a vegetable bin while exploring the freight yards with his friends, the place where the city gets its food and dumps its garbage. The freight bins go into tunnels, and Axel woke up buried under cabbages, already underground. He has a huge scar under his hair from where he hit his head. Unfortunately, Amy can't understand much of what he's talking about, having never known anything but the city. What she does understand is the next part of his story, how he was chased by crazies in the service levels. Did they have pasty skin and long white hair and fangs and fingernails like claws? She asks eagerly. Axel says no, describing pretty normal crazies, and Amy decides that that is a mark in his favor, since he's not just trying to tell her an exciting story. And she feels sorry for him, since he never found a way out of the lower levels and has spent months living in the youth shelter with no one listening to him. Is it a crime to not come from the city? Axel asks. Everybody does, is all Amy can say. Well, is it a crime to want to get out? He wonders. I think so, she says. They say there's pollution outside anymore, and the air is too polluted to breathe. Axel disputes this, about to tell her about the town of Mercer where he comes from, but just then Amy's mother Valerie gets home. You are in my space, she says. Get out. The boy flees without another word. Chapter 3 It's normal for adults to be very possessive of their space. After making sure the unwelcome visitor didn't use any water, Valerie settles in for her meditation show. A cartoon character saying... I lose myself in my work. My work sets me free. My work makes me important. I do the best I can. When I work, I do not see or hear those around me. They are working too. I buy things because buying things makes me happy. Things never disappoint. Only people disappoint. Amy gets kicked out of the room so Valerie can relax. Her mother sees her as a defective child, spoiled by the old woman who used to live with them. Amy finds Axel sitting in the hallway, hoping she'd come out, and she joins him. She wants to know anything and everything he has to tell her about the outside. Axel talks, and Amy listens, though she doesn't know what sunny or dogs are. She tries not to ask too many questions, but Axel still ends up looking at her the same way she looked at him for not knowing how to get ear guards. Still, it's fascinating to learn that most people live in cities and only a handful live outside as farmers because much of the land is unusable grassland. He's resentful about how dirty everything is here when he knows there isn't really a water shortage. The children discuss whether an 80th level really exists where life is better. Wouldn't everyone go there if it did? Then again, the Learning Center programs teach that there are 80 identical levels and it's not worth leaving yours. They stop talking when Axel begins to get paranoid about the crazy who's been sleeping nearby, sure that he's moved closer to hear them over the ventilation fans. Then the man gets up, dresses, and walks away, mumbling, The Watcher is everywhere. Sometimes when I see people like that, Axel says, I think that's what I'll be when I grow up if I can't get out of here. Amy is disturbed to think homeless people were once children who grew up, but doubtful. After all, Half the cameras are broken, and some are dummy units, and crazies stare because they are crazy. Still, she is more determined than ever to find a way outside. Chapter 4 Amy lies in her bunk thinking about the city, though she's incapable of picturing what it might look like from the outside. She has done a lot of exploring on her own. 
As per the Learning Center, there are 80 levels, each with two wide corridors labeled A and B, with narrower halls going perpendicular to them. There is a saying that says, Halls are straight and have an end. Corridors go on forever. Amy has walked as far as 140 blocks down Corridor A and 90 down Corridor B, but had to turn back. The old woman Janet, who taught her to read, said things were better long ago with open spaces and plants, but no longer. Nighttime is a lonely, uncomfortable time. Valerie grinds her teeth, so Amy has to wear her ear guards, and the vibrating in the walls sometimes turns into a terrible shaking that makes the single light panel flicker. Some people worship their light panels. To distract herself, Amy tries to make a plan, though she doesn't know how to find a way out. Will it take a day or longer? What will she eat? Where will she sleep? She can't use her ID, or she might be brought back as a runaway, sent off for rehabilitation. Amy doesn't want to make trouble for her mother any more than she already has, and plans to vacate her bunk, leaving the apartment free so Valerie can have her friend Ted live with her. In the morning, Amy waits until Valerie is about to leave for work before getting up and letting her know she's going to ask to be moved into a training dorm. They won't take you. Valerie says while eating a piece of proto-mush. They might, Amy says. My record's pretty normal now. I can try. Valerie reveals that she's been trying to get Amy moved into a training dorm since she turned 10, like normal children, but has failed for a whole year. Amy is surprised and a little frightened. Quote, It was one thing to want to leave, but quite another to realize she definitely was not wanted and hadn't been for a long, long time. Unquote. Once Valerie leaves, Amy prepares herself for a journey. She takes a shower, even though it's not a designated day. She puts on two of her clean jumpsuits and fills the shirt pockets with proto-mush heated to crispy in the microcooker. She packs her comb and her toothbrush, her only possessions. And she slips on her sandals. No sign of her left in the room. Chapter 5 Amy leaves home, maybe for the last time, and passes by the drooling crazy who sleeps nearby. She makes her way through morning traffic as first shift workers head to the labs and children head to the learning centers. Quote, She took for granted the dimly lit halls and corridors, concrete tunnels fetid with the smells of unwashed bodies, morning breaths, stale food odors, clogged drains, and ventilators blocked with refuse. This was normal for her. She had never known anything else. Unquote. Dodging traffic, Amy walks 25 minutes to the learning center. She's dismayed when Axel doesn't show up at all. She sweats in her two jumpsuits during morning exercises and endures a learning tape called City Living she's heard a dozen times. It hammers home rhymes like Hallway traffic flows fine if we all keep in single line and Traffic never gets too tight if we all keep to the right. In the past, Amy would become so stifled by boredom that she had to escape to the sanitary module to get herself under control overcome with both tiredness and nausea. Nowadays, she's learned how to disconnect from things, to escape into her daydreams. She's not going to miss the learning center, nor her classmates. Anita never liked her. Anne stopped talking to Amy when she heard rumors. Alan pretends to be dumber than he is, and Agnes just smiles sometimes. When break time comes, Amy leaves. She goes to the ramps, the only rounded things in this world of blocks, and goes up to level 12. She finds the youth center, since level 12 is the same as level 9, where she grew up, and spends a while dealing with the bored guards. They look up Axel 32281 and eventually decide there's no harm in letting her in. 
This shelter is huge, made up of dozens of rooms filled with hundreds of bunk beds stacked three high. It's mostly deserted, but Axel is there hiding under his blanket. He's completely shut down, hopeless, and wants to be left alone. Amy is at first unsure what to do, not wanting to start the search alone and feeling unwanted everywhere she goes, but realizes Axel might just need a good kick. So Amy tells him she's going without him. Goodbye, Axel, she says, and walks away. Before she makes it to the door, he shouts after her, That's not my real name! Curious and relieved, Amy returns to his bedside. Axel doesn't elaborate on what he said, but he asks if she's really serious about going searching for the exit today. Just like her, he has a million reasons that have scared him away from simply walking into the corridor and looking. What if you can't find a way out? He asks in a whisper. What if people try to catch you? I did try, you know. And if I fail again, then I'm trapped here for always. Yes, Amy agrees. So am I. But you're used to it, Axel retorts. You don't know anything better. Although offended by this, Amy doesn't want to go alone. So she simply asks him if he's coming or not. And as she walks away again, he runs after her. Meanwhile, back at the learning center, the watcher has noticed that both Amy and Axel are missing. He has a bad feeling about them. So, he looks up Axel's file. The first entry was made less than a year ago and says, Unidentified pre-adolescent male patient admitted in comatose condition suffering from concussion, severe lacerations, contusions, abrasions, and four broken ribs. Severely depressed. No print ID on file. Assumed illegal birth in service tunnels. Next, the watcher calls the youth shelter and learns that Axel left there with Amy, confirming his suspicion that they're skipping school together. Then, the watcher calls the medic who treated Axel, and the man vaguely remembers him, saying, His reality parameter was shaken. In what way? The watcher asks. He believed he lived outside. When? Before he was admitted. Had he? The medic is careful. No one should be asking questions like that. There's no way he could be telling the truth. Nevertheless, the Watcher decides to alert the hall monitors. Chapter 6 As they walk, Axel and Amy discuss where to start. Axel really wants to go up the ramps in search of level 80, since he's already seen the lower levels, while Amy isn't sure it's worth going all the way up just to have a look outside. Even though she worked so hard to get Axel to come along, she finds it's frustrating to have another person's ideas to contend with. Just then, Amy spies a familiar face in the crowd. The crazy from her apartment block on level 9. What's he doing here? Axel doesn't really care, still fixated on climbing upwards. And she finally agrees. The children make their way to the spiraling ramp in corridor A and begin their ascent. They reach level 16, but Axel is excited to have hope again, so they keep on walking. At level 20, they're both panting from the effort of walking on an incline. Amy has never walked more than two ramps at a time. They stop to rest and have a bite to eat at the benches where old people sit around and watch the ramp crowds, but keep moving when a crazy spies them eating. The rats and crazies really bother Axel, while Amy has learned to ignore them over the course of a lifetime. Why are there so many? He asks. Rats? Amy asks. Crazies, Axel clarifies. I don't know, she replies. There didn't used to be, not when I was little. It's getting worse. But the city is old. Axel points out how silly it is to use that as an excuse, that the city is old and that's all there is to it. That doesn't have anything to do with there being more crazy people around, does it? 
The pair continue climbing, resting every five levels, until they arrive at level 48, where the ramp simply arches up and then back down. It's a dead end. Amy is exhausted, bewildered, and disappointed, convinced that they should have gone down instead. Axel tells her not to quit. They have to keep looking because he's never found anything in the lower levels. How many times have you tried to find your way out? She asks. Six, he says. Before making any decisions, they find their way to a public sanit. City smart as she is, Amy has a brilliant idea to get in and out safely by pretending they have to throw up. Everyone gets out of their way and actually pushes them forward to use the stalls. Like everywhere else in the illiterate city, the door is marked with a picture symbol. The children just start walking down the corridor. Tired as they are, it feels endless, and Amy notices the hall numbers they pass. Quote, The school tapes lied. Every level was not the same. There were 72 halls in her sector of level 9, and a ramp every 20 halls. The hall they were passing here was numbered 96, and no ramp was in sight. Unquote. Amy doesn't say anything about it lest Axel gets scared. At hall 121, they find a ramp though it's narrower and steeper than the others, with emergency vehicle tire marks on the grooved pavement. As they climb, they reach a point where ID cards are required to exit the ramp onto the levels, so the children have to rest against the wall. They can't risk giving away their location. Eventually, they find themselves at level 70, practically alone, and there are no ID turnstiles. It seems like a good place to take a break. Chapter 7 There isn't a corridor here. It's just a hallway that ends in a curve, and the words, No unauthorized personnel beyond this point, printed on the wall in red. It's very quiet and unsettling. Spent, Axel sinks to the floor in a stupor, and Amy leaves him there once it seems like he's not going into a full-blown panic attack. She takes the opportunity to examine the blisters on her feet and eat something, only to fall asleep sitting against the wall. The tickle of rats wakes them up, Amy calmly shoes them away, while Axel jumps to his feet in disgust. After all that's happened, Amy proudly thinks she is very much like a rat, smart and able to go anywhere. After eating, they investigate the gate that separates them from the curve in the hallway that goes out of sight, including the confusing signage warning about freight traffic. The nicest smell Amy has ever experienced drifts towards them with a warm gust of air. Oranges! Axel exclaims. While he continues to look at the gate, Amy notices a nearly invisible door in the wall beside it. There is a sign there. Important notice to service personnel. In compliance with city health codes, all personnel utilizing sublevel emergency entrance must, repeat, must, immediately upon leaving contaminated area. 1. Remove and place all garments in discard bin. 2. Enter decontamination chamber. 3. Proceed to medics unit. 4. Submit to prescribed, sanitized, and or Medicare. 5. Don sterile garments. Lock release mechanism activated by pressure-sensitive switches. First letter. Each line. Press in reverse sequence only. Access time 10 seconds only. Note, in time of riot alert, this door will not open. Amy and Axel deduce that this sign is meant to keep out people who can't read. They wouldn't be able to open the door to save their life. Both children are limping from their blisters, and debate whether to go through this door or continue up the ramps. But before they can decide, the sound of voices draws their attention, and they see a guard car coming down the hallway towards them. Seated inside are two guards and a very familiar man with matted hair. Quote, Without really thinking, 
Amy touched the first letter of each line, bottom to top, and almost idly wondered if a person could die of fear. Unquote. The car reaches the door just as it closes, and the guards hammer on it with their fists, to no avail. You never used to lose them, tracker, one of them scolds the dirty man. Apparently, he's failed several times this year, refusing to use his sleeper drug on children. With nothing else to do, the guards turn the car around, and the grungy man stares at the door until it's out of sight. Chapter 8 Beyond the door, Amy and Axel find themselves in a small room, relieved when it seems like the guards can't get in, presumably because they can't read. At first there is a bright pink light, but it flicks off and a voice says, Vermin eradication complete. Please disrobe. Discard all garments and footwear. Proceed to Sanit. Thank you. Amy and Axel explore the entire room. There are no watcher cameras anywhere. The only things in the room are a door to the Sanit toilet, a door labeled decontamination, and a bench with a place labeled deposit garments here. Amy tries the doors, but they can't leave without following directions. She gets on the bench to check for cameras above, and they notice a thick layer of dust on it. No one has been here in a long time. Used to following orders coming from speakers, Amy goes ahead and undresses, and Axel follows suit despite his worries about ending up on the other side of the door, but naked, for the authorities to find. Inside the decontamination chamber, a shower of warm, soapy water cleans them thoroughly, though their blisters sting. Fortunately, the next door leads to a medic's room where their feet are treated and they are given sedatives to treat their exhaustion. Amy wakes up in the medic's recliner, covered in a soft blanket, with Axel in another chair next to her. She's surprised to see he's actually a pretty boy without all the grime. Getting up, another recording says, Good morning. Today is June 9th. The time is 10.17 a.m. Please dress and exit at your earliest convenience. Thank you. Walking on heeled feet, Amy opens a package to find a set of pure white clothes and soft red shoes. It's a shocking color. It would show dirt immediately. But there's nothing else to wear, so she puts it on. Axel is slower to wake up and get up, enjoying the comfort. After speculating about how long it's been since someone stepped foot in here, they exit into a passage with arrows on the floor. They have successfully entered level 70. Chapter 9 The children walk down the passage and enter a wide service aisle lined with color-coded equipment and pipes, all the colors faded. There are no people, bugs, or rats. Axel says it looks like a clean version of the service levels at the bottom of the city. Unsure what to do, they just keep following the arrows. Amy is nervous being in such a wide space, and with no people. To pass the time, Axel asks if Amy told her mother she was leaving. She doesn't really answer, simply assuring him that Valerie won't miss her, and she doesn't know her father. Valerie had me just because it was a baby bonus year. All the girls who had babies got better jobs and got to move from dormitories to apartments. The authorities do that when people die off and they need new people to replace them. The next baby bonus will be two years from now. Anita said she was going to have one then. But she doesn't really want a baby. Just the bonus. Like Valerie. Axel can't believe people wait to have babies until the authorities want them to. And Amy explains that the authorities control everything with drugs and the food and water. Like when people get too upset about the filth or bad food. I really hate this place, Axel says. They come to a sign that explains how to open another door safely, this one instructing them to pull a lever so that lasers won't be fired at them. 
Unfortunately, the door will only stay open for 10 minutes, and the one that opens is a ways off, so they have to run. Amy gets a leg cramp after a few minutes, slowing her down, and she's afraid of watching Axel get through the door without her. Much to her surprise, he slows down and runs beside her, grabbing her hand and pulling her along so they make it through together. Through the door is a new ramp, and they look back at where they came from. It hits Amy how terrible this place is, how those lasers would kill anyone who couldn't read the sign and learn to pull the lever. Everything is set up to prevent city people from going anywhere. It's all lies, she thinks. All lies! She's so angry her vision clouds over and it takes Axel a while to calm her down. The ramp is brightly lit as they climb and Amy begins to think maybe she and Axel can be friends. The sort of friends she's never had aside from the old woman who taught her to read. Someone who won't leave or care only for themselves. It means a lot to her that Axel came back to run with her. A super bright light falling upon the floor ahead startles them both. Amy thinks it's a laser, but Axel realizes it's sunlight. He spins and dances for joy. It's the sun! I thought I'd never see it again. Just as quickly, he falls over and sobs. I want to go home. Chapter 10 A woman dressed in yellow finds them, having heard Axel, and figures that they must have gotten lost while exploring. She's clean and friendly, unlike any adult Amy's ever met. You children shouldn't be down here, she says. This is a deserted area, and not all the nasty people live in the lower levels. We have some here as well. Amy decides she'll contemplate the word nasty later, for now remaining in survival mode. She's used to keeping a straight face, not drawing attention to herself, and covers up Axel's oddities while he's upset. The woman kindly leads them up and away, holding their hands. Trying to sound natural, Amy asks, where does the sun come from? I don't know, the woman says. Maybe a hole in the ceiling. This is still a part of the old structure. She brings them up to a warehouse of people and robots and points them towards a door. Axel almost blows their cover by asking, Will there be more sun out there? But the woman thinks he's just been badly frightened by getting lost. Just as Amy and Axel walk away, they see a white security vehicle pull up to the woman investigating a computer malfunction or the possibility of someone coming through a door. Pretending not to hear the woman calling after them, the children carefully keep walking. Amy knows better than to run and look guilty. What are we guilty of? Axel wonders. Coming from the lower levels, she says simply. They turn a corner and exit the building and find themselves in the fabled level 80. Above them is a great glass dome with a sky above and there are beautiful parks plants, fountains, and seven-story buildings. Amazing as it is, they don't stop until they've passed through several areas, coming to a stop beside a fountain. Huffing and puffing, they decide that no one is following them, and they look more or less like the other children they see dressed in white. Tall adults dressed in all sorts of colors walk around at their leisure. Level 80 is better than the stories, and Amy starts to wonder what the people down below would do if they knew all this bright light clean air, and fresh water was up here. She finds herself remembering one of the signs from level 70. In time of riot alert, this door will not open. Axel leads her towards a park of trees and flowers, and Amy can't believe how few people are up here. They walk comfortably in ones and twos, with space between them, or they drive in non-emergency cars. Axel has told her to not stare so much, saying the city is more or less what he expected, but richer. When they reach the park, 
Amy can't get enough of the goldfish in the pond, or the perfect trees, or the green grass, the most beautiful things she's ever seen. On the far side of the park, the dome and its metal support beams arch down, and they hurry over to look down on the ground way below. However, they stop short and just stare. There are other domes and covered walkways between them, and there's the ground. This isn't the roof, Axel says quietly. This is the surface. All the rest of the city is underground. I thought it was, but everybody said I was crazy. That's why everything's dark down below. Why there are no windows. Why nobody gets outside. You just believed what you were always told because you didn't know any better. Chapter 11 In a daze, Amy sits on a bench and Axel joins her. Suddenly, an old man in blue comes to sit with them, offering them a vial of anti-trom to calm their nerves. I use it a lot myself, he says, and asks them what's wrong. He laughs understandingly when they say they were looking outside. Amy is amazed by the man's height. In the lower levels, he would have bumped his head constantly. You two weren't thinking of trying to get outside, were you? The man asks worriedly. People your age often do. Should know better. There is no way out, you know. Even if there were, you'd die out there. Granted, the air is clean again, but if you could get out, where would you go? Axel can't help himself. He argues that there is something out there beyond the city. There is no beyond, son, the old man says. Domes like ours cover everything except the oceans. I'm old, and I know. I've seen a lot in my time. But if everything is city, Axel says, where does the food come from? Why, from farms down below, the man replies. That's all farms under there. Floor after floor of nothing but hydroponic farms. They're all automated. Crops grow under lights and in the water from the rain. Rainwater collects and runs down the grates around the outer edges of the domes. Nothing is wasted. You should have been taught that by this time. Do you think there are people down there? Amy asks. In the subsurface levels? The man laughs. You've been told those old horror stories too? I used to enjoy them when I was your age. About all the people who lived down below in darkness and gloom. They used to give me nightmares. I must have been 15 before I quit believing they existed. Did people ever live down there? Amy asks. Apparently they did, the man says. Long time ago, before the domes were built. They thought it would be more energy efficient to live underground back when you couldn't breathe the air outside and the sun made people sick. But when things got better and the domes got built, the people who had to live down there protested. There were evidently some bloody battles, riots and all, but the authorities settled it. Who fought who? Axel wonders. I don't know, he says. Since history was removed from the learning centers, everyone's forgotten the old stuff. Happened before I was born. Long before you were born. Doesn't really matter. It's all past now and forgotten. Nobody lives that way anymore. Everything's the same now. As the conversation winds down and Amy and Axel start to leave, the old man observes that they're not from this dome, but the children hurry off before he can get too nosy. The two of them discuss whether or not that man really believes everything he says, and determine that it doesn't matter because that's what he was taught, just as people down below are taught untrue things and hear stories they don't believe. So, do the authorities know the truth? Do guards? Axel wonders if this man knew more than the adults they encountered in the lower levels, since he seemed nicer. But Amy says, Maybe it's not that he's any nicer, just that he lives an easier life. They have to decide on their next move, 
Probably the best thing is returning to the warehouse and finding the freight elevator, but they're not sure if they can. Axel points them west towards where his home should be, explaining to Amy what directions east and west are. He polices her language a lot, telling her not to use words like hall and corridor when they're walking on streets now. Don't be mad, he says when she gets defensive. We have to think about those things. The openness of this place is disturbing to Amy, especially the way she can look up into nothingness. She almost wants to curl up the way Axel did down below. She lets Axel's nostalgia for home distract her, learning that he has parents and friends who she's sure will want to meet her. As they walk, they occasionally see buildings in disrepair, falling down, the bricks being gathered up for repurposing. Maybe it shakes up here at night too, Amy speculates, but this doesn't look half as old as down level. A lot of down level is cut out of solid rock, Axel says. It wasn't built so much as it was tunneled out. All the corner blocks are solid rock. So are the ramps. Entering the glass tube connecting domes, the children can see more domes outside, stretching to forever. Just then, a horn sounds, and all the people in the tube turn to face the glass wall, and the children are startled to realize they're not looking out, but at the floor. A big car passes through the tunnel. Oh! A woman exclaims, pulling Amy towards the wall. Don't look at them! You know that's not allowed. What if they saw? Don't think that just because these two are more lenient than the last, they aren't the same. And your youth won't help you if they decide to make an example of your disobedience. The woman leaves them quickly, and the children are left baffled. Then, suddenly, someone grabs them from behind. Don't make a scene, they say. It's all right, Amy. The authorities want to meet you. Like any good rat... Amy bites. Chapter 12 Amy slowly comes back to full consciousness after a long time spent dazed and drugged, hardly aware of the questions people are asking her. She wakes up to Axel calling her name and poking her, relieved when she opens her eyes. He gives her water, which is fresher than anything she's ever had. The sanit is also the biggest and cleanest she's ever seen. In the room itself, there is nothing but a set of recliners. Axel points out a big mirror that he's sure is a two-way mirror and that people are watching them. Already used to masking how she feels in the presence of cameras everywhere in the lower levels, Amy isn't really surprised. In regards to their questions, Axel thinks these people actually believe him about coming from outside, since they didn't write him off as crazy and spoke amongst themselves a lot. The authorities who caught them open a door, slide them a tray of food with a gun pointed at them, and disappear. It's a beautiful spread of bread, chicken, carrots, and oranges. None of it is anything Amy has ever seen, so Axel becomes her teacher, showing her how to peel an orange and discard bones. They enjoy it for a while, then Amy realizes that this is a test. Axel's familiarity with all this food proves he's not from the lower levels. This leads them to speculating about where all the good food goes if the underground people have only synthesized proto-mush and scraps and they determined that everything Axel's people produced must be sent directly up here. Chapter 13 A voice speaks to them through a speaker, requesting that they stand, and Axel does so. Amy, on the other hand, remains sitting on the floor. She is still drowsy from all the drugs they gave her after she bit one of them, and feels dizzy and bold. Her disobedience scares Axel, but she points out that they've had hours to observe them and interrupted their meal simply because they could. You are the first to completely breach our security precautions in five years, the voice says. Are you the authorities? Amy asks. 
that's what you call us, it replies. Amy wants to know if she and Axel are going to be sent back down to be rehabilitated. I admit we did consider returning you, the voice says, but decided in your case it would be pointless. Your kind exists to supply us with the goods and services we need. To be effective, rehabilitation would result in two more non-productive consumers, useless eaters. We have enough of those already. Amy tries to ask more questions, but another voice interrupts the first to argue that disposal is the best means of security, that intelligence is useless to people like this. They won't belong, and they won't forget, or forgive, the new man continues. They look harmless now because they're children, but they will grow up and become revolutionaries. You cannot afford to make exceptions, chairman. You've never served sublevel. I spent five years down there among those sullen animals. The speaker shuts off, and Amy goes back to eating, picking up carrots from the floor, since it's cleaner than almost any surface she's ever seen. She contemplates the way people like her are talked about. Nasty. Animals. Like rats. Meanwhile, much as Axel is intrigued by her idea that the authorities might be afraid of the people below, he's mostly anxious to get outside. After a while, the door opens to reveal a young man dressed in white, with a handgun strapped to his side. He's more relaxed than the previous people were, introduces himself as Elton, and leads them away. Outside the building on a deserted street, Elton reveals that this is the security center, and that they are in a different dome than where the children were caught, but nothing more. He has them get into a van and starts driving. They drive for a long time. Axel can tell they've headed west because of the setting sun, which is a new concept for Amy. Quote, in her world, day and night defined time, not light level, unquote. The two of them look out the windows as they pass through more than 10 domes and see that in the distance, some domes don't have any lights on. They speculate about this, since everything up here is newer than what's below, yet seems more flimsy. Some domes have collapsed into total ruin. Eventually, the domes get emptier and emptier, and Elton drives faster. At last, he stops in a dome, tells them to wait there, and leaves the car to disappear inside a building. They wait a long time, then fall asleep. They don't wake up until dawn begins to light the run-down dome. Elton is still gone, and Axel has discovered that the van doors are not locked. While Amy is terrified that this might be a trick, Axel is too excited about escaping. They can hear birds for the first time, which means they had some way of getting inside the dome from outside. Upon further inspection, they find that the place where there should be a tunnel connecting this dome to another is missing, replaced with a makeshift cover and nothing beyond. Axel drags Amy over to find a torn opening in the cover, but she's uneasy. Quote, this was much too neat, too easy. Something was wrong, Unquote. Chapter 14 Outside the dome is a thicket of weeds and grasses. They run around another dome with no lights on and their clothes and soft shoes are soaked with dew. Amy tries to look at everything as Axel pulls her along, both behind them to see if anyone's coming and around at the things she's never seen. If no one's coming, then they're surely watching them leave. There are tree branches to dodge and little green insects that leave streaks of green on her white shirt when she smushes them. Other insects are singing in their scratchy voices, and there are so many plants with different names. Once they get far enough past the dome, they can see ahead into the endless grasslands beyond. The city does have an end, Amy says. I think Elton brought us out to the edge. 
It dawns on Axel that this may have been planned, that they were let out on purpose. He wonders why they didn't send them to rehabilitation or kill them. Maybe they were too nice. Amy is skeptical, not sure any authority figure can be nice, but holds her tongue. They speculate about how nervous the authorities were to hear Axel was from outside. Is it possible his parents came asking and he wasn't there? Why not just send you back? Amy asks. Don't the authorities know the way to where you live? Don't they come to check on things? No, Axel says. They used to, long ago before my father was born. But they always got the flu when they came, so they quit. Everything's handled by computer. The authorities now might not know any more about us than I knew about them before. They might not even know how to send me back. As for why Amy is here with him, Axel is sure it's because the authorities knew they were traveling together and wouldn't be so unfair as to separate them. While Amy believes nothing of the sort, she's grateful to know Axel thinks of her as his friend. The children keep walking, passing the ruined foundations of several domes, until there aren't any more. By mid-morning, they have made it several miles away, and, quote, the city was visible only as shining mounds on the eastern horizon, unquote. Despite the journey ahead of them, at least a couple days walking, Axel feels better than he ever has since being trapped in the city. However, it's not long before they're both hot, hungry, dirty, and covered in scratches. This is nothing like the idyllic pictures in the book Amy used to have. Axel has to explain that the sun can burn you slowly and painfully, so they have to be careful about resting without shade. Just trust me, he pleads when she's doubtful. You know all about the city and help me, but I know more about out here. As they get a move on, Amy catches white movement out of the corner of her eye, but she can't be sure. Her eyes are watering from the bright sunlight. Quote, They went on across land that looked as if, sometime long ago, man had leveled every tree and hill, covered it all with garbage, and then covered it all again with clay. Where the gullies cracked open the flat surface, ancient plastic bottles, glass, and dull metallic shapes protruded from the clay. Along some gully bottoms, rain had washed mounds of refuse into crevices." Unquote. Axel doesn't know enough to explain it, other than to say people used to live all over the place. He stops talking mid-sentence. He saw someone in the distance. The two of them immediately find a thicket and hide inside. For a few minutes they wait, all nerves, but then exhaustion takes over and they doze off. Quote, the sun was hard on eyes accustomed to the 40-watt brightness of level 9. Unquote. And Amy can smell the floral soap they were bathed in. Her mind wanders from place to place, thinking of the great luxuries of level 80, hoping Axel wouldn't think she was nasty and stupid when they reached his home, remembering how everyone she was ever close to let her down or died. A twig snaps, and Amy looks up while Axel sleeps on. Much to her shock and horror, the man coming into view is the crazy who used to sleep down the hall from her apartment. Chapter 15 The tall, thin man dressed in brown looks around, then moves on. Then, before Amy can fully relax again, another person comes into view. Elton, the guard who brought them to the city's edge. He's wearing goggles and a wide hat. His presence is almost as confusing as the crazies, because she doesn't know if he's trying to get them back or not. When the coast is clear, Amy wakes Axel, and they move on. The going is hard made worse by their delicate clothes and shoes and lack of equipment. They have to navigate soft clay, glass shards, plastic, eroded hills, 
deep pits, mosquitoes, and snagging vines. Amy wants to know how Axel lives out here, and he says that where he grew up it isn't like this. He's trying to take them towards some hills in the distance, which he thinks marks the end of the Badlands. Amy is filled with dread upon seeing how far away those hills are. Are you sorry we came? Axel asks. At first Amy isn't sure, suffering as she is, but the thought of returning to the city is awful when even this uncomfortable world is clean by comparison, with good smelling air. She doesn't want to go back. They drink at a muddy puddle and rest, watching birds come to bathe and a rabbit drink. It's a delightful sight. Axel tells her he's rarely seen rabbits, since something called the rabbit fence encircles his home of Mercer. It's tall and electrocuted to keep vermin out, and was built by the authorities a long time ago. Slowly, the landscape changes from littered grassland to savanna with small pines. As the sun sets, Axel explains to Amy that they won't be left in total darkness and finds them a place to sleep in a cluster of trees. He's able to use the stars to confirm that the month is June, just as the computer told Amy when they first woke up from their medics-induced nap on level 70. They sleep, able to see the stars through the branches. The next morning, they trudge onwards, aching with hunger, keeping an eye out for their pursuers. When they come across a big waterhole, Axel jumps in for a wash, and Amy reluctantly follows, having never been submerged in water before. She leaves him to it after a bit, and goes looking for her shoes, and stumbles across a dead body. Chapter 16 The dead man is Elton, one of the men following them. It seems like someone hit him in the head. Most of his clothes and possessions are missing, though not his shoes, oddly. While Axel is disturbed and disgusted, Amy is less so. I've seen lots of people lying on the pavement, she says, but I was never sure if they were dead or high or sleeping, and I never waited to find out. They have no choice but to leave him there, and they keep moving. Eventually, Axel finds some strawberries. They're sweet and delicious, and ease the hunger pangs. Amy takes this opportunity to ask Axel why he's being so quiet, and he admits that he's been thinking of the dead man, so still, possibly someone with a family, maybe a good person, despite doing as the authorities told him. After all, he didn't hit them the way others did. Quote, Amy said nothing, wondering if failure to inflict physical abuse qualified a person as good. She could think of a lot of people who had never hit her, but whom she had never once thought of as good." Unquote. He probably only did what he was told to do, Axel says. I don't think that makes him good, Amy says. Machines do what you tell them to do if you press the right buttons. That doesn't make them good. That just means they'll do what they're programmed to do, like Elton. This conversation devolves into a fight, as Axel accuses Amy of being unfeeling, and her telling him to stop imagining himself as that dead man. However, if Amy really lets herself think about it, there was something awful about seeing Elton lying there, and the argument fizzles out. After a hard night's sleep, they keep going, but they're in bad shape. Their stomachs hurt from having nothing but water and acidic berries. Their feet are inflamed, their muscles are sore, and their skin is burned, making their eyelids swell. Axel spends his time talking about the foods he misses, and Amy doesn't ask what any of it is so as not to torture herself. Whenever they stop, it gets harder and harder to get going again. Quote, They walked over land once forested for centuries. Farming had destroyed the trees. Cities had destroyed the farms. Time had destroyed the cities. 
the land remained, slowly covering its degradation with new plant life. For many miles in all directions, they were the only humans, save one. Unquote. Chapter 17 After falling asleep under an ancient concrete ledge, Amy and Axel wake up to find someone there taking care of them, putting cool, wet cloths over their swollen, shut eyes. What starts out as some amount of relief quickly turns to heart-pounding fear as they realize their legs have been tied together. Don't be afraid, the intruder says. You must not run. You must rest. Amy manages to pry open her eyelids enough to see that the man who has caught them is the same crazy from the city they saw before. She starts crying, devastated at this failure. It's not fair, she shouts through chapped lips. Why did you let us go? Let us get this far. If you were going to bring us back, that's cruel. Much to her surprise, the man unties their feet. The man haltingly apologizes and explains that yes, he did follow them through the city to level 70, but he didn't stop them when he was supposed to. Most go down, he says. You went up, and I was glad. After the children were safely out of the lower levels, he climbed up secret ways to level 80 on his own. Amy listens, chilled by how sane he sounds. The man goes on to say that he spotted the children when he came outside, and caught up to them in order to help and make up for what he's done. He's watched and reported many children who could read, like Amy can. As a reader himself, he was used to sniff out others after he was retrained. Axel interrupts him to ask if he was the one who killed Elton, the guard who had also been following them. But the man says he also stumbled across the body, and simply took a couple useful things. After calming Amy and Axel for a while, he feeds them proto-mush he brought along. But they can't rest. They're too curious about what he's really doing here. The answer is simple. He came out here to get away, not caring where so long as it wasn't the city. The domes aren't any escape because they're also part of the city ruled by the authorities. Everyone works for the authorities, the man says. Some they send down and never let back up again. But they don't tell you it's forever. They let you guess, slowly, to punish. And when you ask, they lie, to give you hope, to keep you working until all you want is to die to escape the dark city. He apologizes for scaring them. He's not used to talking to other people. He, too, was scared of the real crazies living in the hallways, never sure if he was one of them or not. Maybe you become what people expect you to be, he says. At last, the children relax. They let the man take off their shoes so their blistered feet can heal, and they lie back, unable to see well enough to run away anyhow. They pass the time by asking questions, and the man answers. How far does the city stretch? Amy wonders. Underground? The man clarifies. Along the ocean? Inland? Far. I don't know how far. There are walls, contamination barriers, fire barriers, structural walls. There was no plan. It grew, like mold in the dark. They enclosed and roofed, to escape the heat and cold and dirt. Their waste buried them sometimes. There was hunger. The authorities came back up. They built the domes, sealed off the city. Is the city under us now? Amy asks. Could be, the man replies. Some parts are dead, empty. The domes are dying too. I saw them. Not from sickness, from not knowing enough. Authorities fear people knowing. Only the ones they choose, so they can control. In regards to how he knows so much, the man explains that he was born in the domes, 
and that his parents were authorities. They died during some sort of fight amongst parties, and their children were sent down. The man ended up working in the garbage mines, where they sometimes found books. It was extremely dangerous work. Roof collapses, gas leaks, and other things made it impossible for the authorities to watch everyone all the time. He taught himself to read and sold books to others like him, but one of those buyers turned out to be a watcher, and they caught him. Amy thinks of Janet, the old woman she used to live with who taught her to read. When she asks, the man confirms that he knew of her, but never reported her. They thought she was normal, he says, until she died with her book. She knew my name. She called me James. Chapter 18 Feeling left out, Axel wants to know who Janet is. It's too painful for Amy, so James explains. He knew Janet because she was a medic in the garbage mines. After that, James goes to hide their sleeping place with branches, and the children sleep for a long time. Amy and Axel wake up feeling better than they did, and James is gone. He left them water and a bit of food. Unfortunately, they're not completely alone. Outside their well-covered hiding place, there are voices. It's too dark to see, but Axel heard them moving around and making grunting, whimpering noises. Amy listens too. They don't sound like people, she whispers. Animals don't talk, Axel says. That's not talking, Amy retorts. It's not animals, Axel replies. They listen to the sound of these three or four strangers hunting birds and eating them raw. They can smell their long, unwashed bodies from here. It's terrifying to imagine that these may once have been city people who were sent out the same way Amy and Axel were, now focused only on survival. Maybe there are a lot of people out here hiding in the hills, Amy speculates. But how do they live? Axel asks incredulously. How do crazies live in the city, she counters, any way they can. Then they die. Axel is horrified by her callousness. He'll probably never fully understand all the things Amy has had to accept throughout her life. Before they can quarrel about it, a flash of light distracts them, and Axel explains that it's lightning, that it's going to rain. Amy forgets everything else in her excitement. The thought of seeing rain was the first thing that motivated her to leave the city, to go outside, and she wasn't going to miss it. She presses her eyelids open and watches the lightning, the wind, the roiling clouds, and the water pouring down from the sky. Quote, If all her other dreams about outside failed to come true, at least she had this, the most important one, a glimpse of freedom no authority could ever control. Unquote. Unfortunately, as the summer storm dies down, Amy gets a glimpse of the humans outside during a flash of lightning. They're hairy as animals with claw-like fingernails, covered in dirt and blood with crazed eyes. A couple of them are wearing white, probably clothes taken from Elton's body. Both Axel and Amy are shaken by the sight, terrified of what their future might be. Buoyed by her need to keep Axel from disappearing inside himself the way he did back in the city, Amy cuddles him for comfort and warmth, and they fall asleep, though she can't stop thinking about how they might end up like the wild men. Chapter 19 In the morning, Amy makes a bandage to hold her eyes open. They're both in better shape than they were before, but not perfect. She's pretty sure James has done all he will for them, and they're on their own again. Axel, on the other hand, is frustrated by the way she distrusts everyone automatically, and always acts like she's completely fine while he's scared out of his mind. He wants her to stop putting on a brave face, to just be herself, but Amy has spent her whole life scared and wearing emotional armor to keep it from showing. 
Axel creates a sort of compromise, deciding he'll just assume that if he's scared, then Amy is too. The two of them set off west. After the rain, the ground is muddy, so they keep on drier grassland to avoid leaving tracks, lest the wild crazies find them. After a while, they stop to have a drink and hear a particular windy moaning sound, and upon investigating, they discover an ancient concrete air vent hidden by brush. This is a huge discovery, because it means they're above the freight belt running between the city and Axel's home outside. By climbing on top, they can see another vent in the distance behind them, and one up ahead. However, they also find footprints and evidence of human beings living here. Amy is immediately anxious to leave, and is dismayed when Axel kicks some of the crazy's belongings, shouting, Disgusting! Her fear is justified. A hairy man is fast approaching, drawn by the noise and intrusion, and growls at them. For a moment, Amy keeps him at bay, growling back at him, and looking as awful as she does with her bandaged eyes. But soon it is time for them to run for their lives. They fly through the thicket, spotting more wild men coming after them. With no place to hide, flight is their only option. Chapter 20 As they run, Axel babbles incoherently. They mustn't catch you. I'd be alone. They mustn't catch you. Not me. I'm not from the city. Quote, Even in panic, he led them west, toward home, where safety lay. Through the slits and the rag she wore, Amy saw the ground as a blur. Her sides hurt, and her chest, and each yelp of sound behind her struck her stomach like a physical blow. Unquote. As the wild men get closer, a shout from up ahead draws the children's attention, and they see James throwing rabbits and his bag at their pursuers to make them pause. He also has Elton's gun. Too winded to keep going, Amy and Axel come to a stop behind James and get a good look at the wild crazies. They're filthy and covered in sores. While Axel is disgusted, Amy feels pity for the painful life they lead. The wild men fight over the rabbits, but there are still two of them more interested in James than the children. James, too, feels extremely sorry for them and doesn't want to shoot. Poor animals, he says. Quote, something in his tone made Amy like him. He sounded the way she felt when she wondered if she could live out here alone. And it occurred to her, in that glimpse of growing up, that it must have been hard to live the way James did, friendless, exposed to stares and contempt and rats. And he had been born above and sent down, and that was worse. No wonder he seemed crazy. Axel was afraid he would grow up to live like that. For James, it had come true. Unquote. The wild crazies spring, and there's a short scuffle before the gun goes off. One of them is shot and lies dead, while the other is just wounded and has to be put out of its misery. James performs these tasks, then collapses to the ground, crying. He sobs and wails for a long time, as though all the pain of his life is coming out in this moment, saying things like, They brought me down. They brought me down. Amy does her best to comfort the man, then checks on Axel, who is stiff with shock. When she notices more crazies on the horizon watching them, she tells James it's time to go. You have to get up now, she says. We're going home to Axel's place. You have to help us get there. You can't sit here and cry. We've come too far for that. Looking a little better, a little more sane, James looks at her and smiles a brief, beautiful smile. Amy picks up the gun while James fetches Axel so they can keep going. Chapter 21 Their bodies move on autopilot, with no goal but the next ventilator shaft moving west. They don't look back, aware they're being followed. 
When James offers the children the hat and sunglasses he got from Elton the dead man, they refuse them and let him wear them so he can better protect them as the only adult. When they stop to eat a bit of the food Amy still has in her pockets, James opts to carry the gun himself, despite how much he hates it. Things improve a little when Axel spots some bird's eggs and teaches the other two how to eat them. By now, the hills are getting steeper, so they need longer breaks and all the eggs Axel can find. When they're too exhausted to keep moving, they switch to nighttime survival, their minds on the wild men still following them. Up the hill from the ventilator shaft, they make a small camp by lighting kindling with the laser gun, coached by a slightly more worldly Axel. After a measly dinner and no water, they have nothing to do but speculate about the wild crazies. Did they kill Elton because he seemed dangerous? Is it possible they remember people like him from when they were put outside? James remembers seeing people outside the domes when he was a child, ones who found their way back and beat on the glass to be let back in. The authorities allowed it to happen because it scared everyone inside into behaving. Being sent down seemed better than being abandoned outside. James was only seven years old when he was sent into the lower levels. He can't remember how old he is now. Amy does some mental math, thinking about how long it's been since Janet passed away, back when James was still working, rather than living as a hall monitor, and she deduces that he is now 29. I live to be old, he says wonderingly. The guard told me, you're getting old. I didn't believe her. Axel finds this absurd, since people where he comes from live to be a hundred. He's certain that the people back home will welcome Axel and James as his saviors, but the two city-born aren't so sure. Life has taught them to be wary of everyone, save special people like Janet. Amy wakes up, having nodded off mid-thought, and realizes that somewhere in the darkness, the wild men are throwing stones and glass at them while the fire dies. James fires the laser gun down the hill at their attackers, and the blue beams set some of the grass on fire. Excited, Amy tells him to fire at the grass to create a barrier. At first, it seems brilliant, but then Axel wakes up enough to see what they've done. They're surrounded by fire, and the wind is picking up, blowing smoke and flame. There is a moment of excitement when the ground shakes, and they can tell that bins are moving through the freight shafts below their feet, confirming that they are moving along a, an active freight line. But soon they are consumed by coughing as the wildfire builds. In a panic, desperate for real air without smoke, unable to think of anything else, Amy runs to where there's less fire jumping over some burning grass at the base of the hill. However, something catches her foot, and she falls, hits her head, and lies still. Chapter 22 Amy wakes up wet with dew, cold, and aching. Her head hurts where she hit it, and her lungs are still on fire. She knows now why it was a bad idea to ignite the grass, sitting amongst blackened grass and charred trees. Dizzy and shaky, Amy manages to get to her feet and climb the hill, passing the burned body of a wild crazy as she goes. At the top, she finds her companions unconscious, James with his hand grasping Axel's ankle. It seems that the fire didn't reach them, but the smoke did, and their breathing is shallow. A light rain starts, and Amy tries to drink some of the drops. Just then, something emerges from the fog. It's some kind of vehicle with huge tires picking its way over the uneven ground. Amy tries to wake Axel or James, to no avail. So, she watches as three people get out of the vehicle to investigate the ventilation shaft. They discuss the fire, deciding that it didn't come from the shaft itself, so the freight tunnel probably isn't burning. 
Certain that these are Axel's people, Amy tries again to wake the boy. There's no way she can be sure without his help. Then again, even if she's not sure, she can't let this chance slip away. The three of them will probably die without aid. At this point, it doesn't matter who it comes from. Unsteadily, Amy goes down the hill, and the men are shocked to see her. One man in particular kneels beside her. My name is Amy, she croaks. We walked from the city, Axel and James and me. The men are stunned to hear that she crossed the wastelands, and that there are other children with her. The nice man explains that he and the others aren't from the city, but from a town about 15 miles west of here. Amy isn't sure what to make of this adult's kindness and friendly demeanor. James and Axel are located, along with the charred body of the wild man, which scares the men because they've always assumed such people were myths. Through this conversation, Amy learns that these people really don't know anything about how the authorities operate, and also that the nice man is named Dave. He leaves Amy to help the, with the other two, and stops when he sees Axel, as if he's seen a ghost. I think it's Michael, he cries. Under all that crud, it's Michael. He's so thin. Being picked up wakes the boy that Amy knows as Axel, and at first he's elated to see his father, Dave, then frantic when he remembers that last night he couldn't find Amy in the fire, that James stopped him from looking anymore. The men assure Axel slash Michael that Amy isn't dead, and they're so exultant that one of them picks Amy up to swing her in the air and carry her over. But it's too much for her. Amy sees Axel reach out, feels an arm around her, and the world goes black again. Chapter 23 Amy dreams of people asking what her name is, of Axel telling them what her name is, and of choosing to ignore them all in favor of deep sleep. It's a long time before she rouses herself enough to see that she's in a room with just James. He's relaxed, clean, and dressed in a blue shirt. He convinces her not to fall asleep again just yet. Looking around, Amy sees a clean white room with pictures on the walls, potted flowers by the window, and a yellow blanket. She's hooked up to an IV, while James' arms are all bandaged. Apparently Axel is also mostly okay, though it's in the middle of the night right now, so everyone else is asleep. Amy is still drowsy, but listens to James tell her the story of how the fire that nearly killed them also saved their lives, since it made the outside people think a ventilation shaft was on fire, and drove out to check. After bringing the three survivors home, they went back out to see the hairy wild man, but his body was gone. More than anything, Amy wants to know if these people mind having them here. Will they need to sneak away? And James emphatically tells her that this is an amazing place, where they are very welcome. They feel angry and sad for the sake of all the people living under the authorities in the city, though there's nothing they can do about it. For James and Amy, a new life of food and fountains awaits them amongst beautiful, big, strong people. Best of all, reading is allowed here. There's already a stack of books on the table by the bed that are presents for Amy. And there are more gifts, James says. Flowers there, and clothing, in the closet, and toys, all for you. What's a toy? Amy asks. James gets up and fetches something from the closet. The boy's mother said it was the custom to close your eyes and hold out your hands and get a surprise. So do that. Amy reluctantly does so. And then, quote, felt something furry touch her hand. She jerked away, thinking of rats. Her eyes flew open. 
there on the bed, regarding her with large black and white eyes, sat a round, brown and beige animal with furry ears, a shiny nose, and a red cloth tongue. Unquote. James explains what a teddy bear is, how it's supposed to keep away bad dreams, saying he has one too, and Amy holds the plush toy to her cheek to feel its warmth and softness. James, where will we live? she asks. Here? No, he replies. This is a medic's place. We'll live out there, with Michael's people. That's his name now, Michael. They have a big house, and we'll have our own rooms. What will we do here? she wonders. Live, James says simply. Live to be a hundred. The boy was right. They do. Though he had promised to tell someone if Amy woke up, James agrees not to tell anyone just yet, and answers her request for something to eat. The sandwiches taste so good she has to savor them, but quickly gets tired and wants to sleep some more. The next time Amy wakes up, it's morning. James is asleep in the chair with the teddy bear, birds are singing, and she can see the green lawns out the window. She hears the door open and looks over to see Axel. Are you awake? He whispers. Yes. Are you going to live? Yes, Amy says indignantly. What sort of question is that? The boy hurries off, calling for his parents and everyone else, shouting that Amy is going to live. Quote, it was over. The whole long daydream about going outside was ended. She was here, and it was nothing like she'd imagined it to be. The world in Janet's battered book was gone as surely as those pages. But like the woman and her book, this world was real and offered hope, and she would make it hers. It might take a while, Amy thought, and it might be hard. But she had come up from level nine, and after that, anything was easy. Unquote. The end. It's time for our favorite game. Did the cover artist read the book? In this case, I'd say there are really three covers and three artists, since they all chose to paint a very similar scene, specifically the one where Amy and Axel leave the dome for the first time, running out into the wastelands. Interestingly, only one of the three covers depicts the children running out of a damaged dome that is falling apart. You can see the support beams are broken, the glass is shattered, and the wildflowers are taking over. There's even a number 80 written above the tunnel archway they are coming out of. The other two covers, including the one I own, show Amy and Axel running through a lighted tunnel that suddenly ends at the outside wastelands. The one I have is drawn from the perspective of someone outside looking into the tunnel they are running out of. The other cover I've seen pictures of does the opposite, with the eyes of the viewer inside the tunnel and the children looking back in fear as they sprint towards the grasslands beyond. One particular reason that I like the cover I have despite the fact that a lighted tunnel without glass walls is technically inaccurate for the scene, is the expressions on the children's faces. It shows Axel looking ahead, very determined, while Amy is looking off to the side in shock. I like this because this is a high-stress moment, but it is also extremely important to both of them. Axel has finally gotten out of the city and has his sights on the setting sun to get home, while Amy is seeing the surface of the earth for the first time in her life. On the other covers, it's a bit different. The one with the ruined dome has Amy running ahead while Axel looks back fearfully, and the one with the tunnel perspective shows both kids looking back. I like my copy not just for nostalgia, but because I think the characters' personalities, at least in this moment, come through clearer. In conclusion, I think it's possible that two of the cover artists 
artists received uh, prompts about what the children are wearing, where they are escaping to, and the fact they are running out of a tunnel. Only one of the artists includes enough details to convince me that they read the story all the way through, or at least that chapter. The wildness of the plants, the crumbling dome, and the number 80 are all signs. Meanwhile, the other two copies show simple grasses beyond a generic sci-fi tunnel with sharply angled walls. Rereading This Time of Darkness, it surprises me how fast-paced it is, and how much time the characters spend outside in the second half. I also discovered there are actually three main characters, not two. There is Amy, a girl born and raised on level 9 of the underground city, more than 70 levels below the Earth's surface. There is Axel, a boy from the town of Mercer, where healthy people grow food for the city under an open sky. And finally, there is James, a man who was the child of authorities in the luxury surface domes of level 80. Although we see less of James than the other two, he is present throughout the entire story, starting from chapter 1, when Axel accompanies Amy back to her apartment. James is the supposed crazy who has slept in Amy's hallway for a long time. At one point, she notes that she was never afraid of him the way she was of other crazies. All three characters go through a personal and physical change. For starters, they all witness the three realms of human existence. Amy moves up from the lower levels into the domes, then outside. James starts in the domes, is sent downwards, and makes an escape outside. And Axel's journey is the most circular of all. From outside, to the lowest levels of the city, up to levels 9 and 12, up again to level 80 with Amy's help, where he sees the domes, and then finally outside at last, crossing the wastelands to reach the town of Mercer. Through these characters' travels, we come to have a solid understanding of how much of the city functions, how people are just going through the movements of survival left over from ancestors forgotten and removed from lessons. As for personal transformations, Amy probably changes the least in terms of goals, fortitude, and determination. What changes for her is thanks to becoming friends with Axel, which slowly opens her up to the possibility of caring for other people without feeling in danger of losing them. And as she grows up, she'll hopefully learn to confide in others. At the beginning of the book, she already has the misfortune and advantage of self-reliance through practice and circumstance. It is both her flaw and her weapon in a world out to stamp her down. In my opinion, it is a flaw only in terms of interpersonal relationships that might suffer, because as a practical tool, it more or less starts the journey and ends it. Though the first step is taken by Axel, which we'll talk about in a minute, Amy is the one who really carries out the mission to find a way out of the city. She has the strength to walk away from a relatively comfortable home, as well as to keep walking rather than fall into despair when she discovers how unwanted she was in that home. Her willpower keeps her and Axel moving, and her stubbornness probably keeps them going fast enough that they barely outrun the guards and hall monitor they didn't know were on their tail. Her adaptability, developed over the course of 11 years, is what keeps her and Axel from getting caught immediately inside the domes, acting just inconspicuous enough to explore a little before the authorities track them down. She stumbles sometimes, like when she is tempted to curl up to hide from the wide, exposing sky the way Axel used to shut out the underground dimness. But those moments make her more compassionate for her friend's personal struggles. That moment reminds me of Isaac Asimov's Nightfall, in which people go insane after seeing the night sky for the first time, overcome with the size of the universe rather than marveling at its beauty. Anyway, although Amy's physical strength is greatly tested in the wastelands, 
Her desire for freedom and discovery keeps her from being tempted to turn back, and her bravery and determination at the end of the book saves James and Axel, as well as herself, when she gets the stranger's attention after the wildfire. Perhaps this moment shows how she has changed, how Axel has convinced her that there are some adults who care, and how James has proven that fact, making it possible for her to approach unknown people on her own for the sake of her companions. When the story starts, Amy is living in her own head, getting through each boring day as best as she can without slipping into depression. Her life was good, in terms of city living, while the old woman Janet was still alive, but even that bit of warmth and kindness is gone now. Amy has been labeled a troublemaker, and other children won't talk to her due to the reader rumors, though they don't really know what that means. Janet and Amy had a closer bond than she had with any friend, or even her mother Valerie, possibly because Janet spent her old age caring for babies during designated baby years, while Valerie only had a baby to get a better job and housing. The old woman has made lots of connections to garbage miners and infants over the years. As for Valerie, there doesn't seem to be any sort of marriage within the city, at least in the lower levels, because the birth rate is strictly controlled and people are encouraged not to trust each other too much, to be self-reliant and self-focused. Amy's father is unknown, and Valerie's boyfriend Ted is framed as merely being a more favorable, pleasurable roommate than Amy. Janet and Amy's relationship was unusual, as was their shared ability to read. The sudden loss of this relationship, as well as their single book, wounded Amy, and there was no one there to help her grieve. There are many things about this time of darkness that remind me of The City of Ember books by uh, Gian Duprau, though I only ever read the first one. And I'm sad to say that Ember is a more hopeful story than this one. It too features an underground city where people live with the belief that there is nothing else, that maintaining their dying way of life is all they can do. Jobs are chosen for them, garbage piles are sifted through for useful objects, and they can't control when the lights are on or off. The major difference between the stories is, spoilers here, that the city of Ember is all about forgotten legacy, how the mayors were meant to pass down a locked box containing a plan for how to evacuate the city when the earth had had enough time to heal after human disaster had ruined it. The major conflict of the story comes from two teenagers discovering this lost plan and trying to follow it outside with old traditions and authority figures being their biggest obstacles. This time of darkness, on the other hand, makes it clear that humanity retreated underground with no clear plan at all. They tunneled in a panic, built without any thought for the future, and now droves of them are trapped in the crumbling catacombs. Hoover's novels shows that the same lack of foresight that put people underground might be the thing that dooms them to stay there. Like in Ember, the authorities cling to power and rules and erased history, and a few unusual children are the only ones determined and sneaky enough to escape the system. I want to draw attention to what a good job Hoover does in making the city feel old, grimy, and claustrophobic. It was a real struggle choosing which passages to quote and which ones to skip over for the sake of time. She talks about the low ceilings, the filthy walls, the cockroaches and bugs, the cracks in the pavement filled with refuse. When Axel and Amy make it outside into the Badlands, Amy notes that despite how uncomfortable they are hiking with no food or good clothing, it's still cleaner than the city and the air is still much better. Even a muddy puddle is good to drink from, no worse than what she grew up with. Honestly, I could write several pages simply mapping out everything we know about the lower levels, level 80 and the Badlands, 
but at that point you might as well read the book to absorb it for yourself. So I tried to add a good mix of that information into the summary. There is an element of luck to Amy's tale that goes hand in hand with how she drives her own story. For one thing, in a city that stretches as far as it does, Amy happens to live close enough to some of the freight elevators to 1. feel them vibrate the walls at night, and 2. bring Axel close enough to her area that they eventually have the opportunity to meet. Based on their time in the domes when Elton the guard drives them to the edge of the city, and what James says later, parts of the city stretch inland and all the way to the ocean, which means that the area where Amy grew up can't be that far from the edge near Mercer. Presumably, there are lots of other towns around the edges of the Badlands that send food inside. That brings up another question about how old the freight tunnels are. If the city used to cultivate its own food and then sent people out to start production on the surface when land became habitable again, or if some places remained habitable while cities simply crumbled and moved underground. Hoover did a great job of planting little mysteries that she may or may not have known all the answers to. If the city stretches as far as it seems to, it doesn't seem like Elton had to drive for very long to reach the edge of it, only a couple of hours. Amy is fortunate that she grew up in an area close to freight elevators, that she lived with a woman who could teach her to read, that she happened to attend a learning center, letter A, where Axel was transferred to, and that Axel happened to notice she was a safer potential friend than her peers. These circumstances are her launching pad, and Amy carried herself the rest of the way with James and Axel's help. Axel, on the other hand, has a more complicated journey that started most of a year before he and Amy decided to escape the city. And a fair bit of bad luck. <laughs> Notably, his name is not Axel, but Michael. Though referred to as Axel in Amy's mind throughout the narrative, he is only called Axel once out loud. The watcher and the guards at the youth shelter don't count. Though James uses Amy's name, he doesn't say Axel, perhaps instinctively knowing it's not correct. Earlier in the book, when Amy says, Axel, for the first time, he says, That's not my real name. However, he doesn't feel safe enough to tell her what his real name is during their journey, and she doesn't hear it until they are found by his father and the others. We only have hints about what happened during much of his time in the city. He explains how he ended up falling into a freight bin and transported into the service levels of the city. And there's some discussion about the terrible things that happened to him before he was discovered by the authorities. But then there's a gap. The medic stitched up his head wound, treated his other injuries, and sedated him every time he tried to say he came from outside. Even educated people like medics are held within the system of ignorance, believing that the outside world is dead. As usual, I did purposefully leave out a few details here and there, mainly the more graphic references to Axel's time in the service levels, the events that contributed to the depression he suffers in his new environment. Terrible things happened to him, everyone accepts that, but the complete lockdown on anyone talking about a possible world outside prevents them from listening. Whenever he tries to tell them that he doesn't belong here, they give him a sedative because they're sure he's simply making it up, it's a story that's better than the life he's lived. It's assumed he was an illegal birth in the lower levels. Considering that Amy has been told the authorities put drugs in food and water to keep the population doing what they're supposed to, it's curious to think an illegal birth is possible. So, what happened after that? It's hard to say. When Amy knows him, Axel is living in the level 12 youth shelter, where many, many unwanted children and teenagers end up. Did he live in a different shelter before that? Possibly level one? Was he sent from one to another due to his behavioral problems? I'm not sure. 
What we do know for sure is that he had problems at his previous learning center, so he's been sent down to level 9 to attend the same one as Amy, ending up in learning center A in the huge, alphabetically arranged rooms. Thinking about these learning centers really puts the size and population of the city into perspective. As each one is the size of a football field, and each level has up to 26 of them. Kind of ironic, considering that no one is taught how to read. The youth shelters are also huge, with lots of rooms and bunks stacked three beds high. The biggest mystery, to me at least, is Axel's decision to trust Amy. I've already outlined what we know about each of them before they met, but what I'd really like to know is when they started spending time together. In Chapter 1, he chooses to follow Amy out of the learning center after an exam he didn't bother taking, and timidly starts a conversation. Of course, that conversation is thrown off the rails, many times by sirens and questions he's conditioned not to answer, but it starts this way. Quote, Amy had stopped to put on her ear guards. He touched her arm and, when she turned, smiled his sweet, sad smile. Unquote. For a while, it seems like this is their first time talking, uh, that Axel went after her seemingly out of nowhere, but later on the text says this. She thought he'd turn at the next block and head off up-ramp toward the youth shelter where he stayed. But he didn't. He walked all the way home with her. He'd never done that before. This passage gives me the impression that Amy and Axel are something like acquaintances, the way Amy is with other children in their learning center like Mean Anita or Quiet Agnes. She already knows that Axel lives in a youth shelter a few levels up. She seems to have walked with him occasionally, and this is the first time the conversation has revealed so much about him, like his cluelessness about depots where he can get ear guards, or his knowledge of rain, which is what really gets Amy intrigued. In his attempts to survive, Axel seems to have made a few acquaintances, with Amy being his favorite, though he doesn't seem to see her properly until he finds out that she once had a book. That is what finally begins to truly crack the surface of his despair. I'll mention here that despite holding it inside better, Amy is really just as depressed as Axel in this environment, closing out the world privately rather than literally curling into a ball. More than anything else, this is what they have in common. I wonder if Axel had interactions like this in other youth shelters, at other learning centers. Maybe he was transferred around because he tried to make friends when the authorities let him down and ended up saying something about rain or sunshine or escaping or anything else that might get him reported and removed from a group lest he poison their minds. So it really says something about Axel's inner character, or maybe his inner rebel that got him into this mess in the first place, that he keeps trying despite how horribly depressed he is in the perpetually lit yet dim world of the grimy city. Later, when Axel learns that the current month is June, He's shocked that he's been in the city a whole year. That means he's had plenty of time to be punished for saying crazy things, to be shuffled around rather than have rehabilitation resources wasted on him. Like Amy, he seems designated to a sort of limbo, not fit for the training dorms like other 10-year-olds, yet not disruptive enough for anything else. This shows the paradox the authorities function within. On the one hand, they are quite paranoid, looking for any sign of deviance and wanting to snuff it out, catch it early. On the other hand, they're not very good at dealing with it effectively. They're just smart enough to know who brainwashing will work on, but not smart enough or forward-thinking enough to utilize or fully stamp out the smartest, most troublesome people. Even in the beautiful, clean, well-fed domes, the authorities don't know what to do other than kick the children out. 
the lower levels are crumbling after who knows how many hundreds of years, and the domes are crumbling after much less, built to be pretty with less passed down knowledge. The people are convinced that the city goes on forever. The authorities know that at the edges it is collapsing. No one is in a position to do anything other than hide what they know. Throughout the book, Axel utilizes a sort of me-versus-them mentality to boost his hope of escape and returning to a proper life. He doesn't fully adapt to the city because he doesn't want to stay there. Even in the Badlands, he says some funny things about how he doesn't want Amy to get caught by wild crazies because he doesn't want to be alone, not able to imagine that he too might get caught when he really belongs somewhere else back in his old life. Although Amy has the fortitude to perhaps live in the city pretending to be normal, to one day teach someone else to read and be a quietly kind person like Janet, Axel himself acknowledges that he was in real danger of becoming a crazy, roaming the hallways. His predisposition for despair and delusion point in that direction, though having a head injury and being harassed in the dark service levels didn't do him any favors. In this way, Amy saved his life by convincing him to try again, and he probably saved hers by insisting they climb upwards to level 80 since he'd already explored down below. I'd like to acknowledge something quickly at this point. The book refers to the people living in the hallways as crazies, because that is what society has labeled them as. Based on the ones Amy sees, some are ill-adjusted, some or all are mentally ill, some have delusions, some might be on drugs. Talking about people as crazy quickly leads you down the road to generalizing illnesses and circumstances, and at one point Amy herself considers this when she hears the people of the lower levels referred to as nasty. Getting to know Axel and James also adjusts her way of thinking. It scares her to imagine that the people roaming the hallways might once have been children like Axel and herself, and she's sad to think of James living amongst them, clinging to his sanity. By the end of the book, Axel has begun to blossom back into himself. Through his friendship with Amy, he stops looking down on the city dwellers as much as he did, relying on her to climb through the levels. He later reciprocates with his know-how of the great outdoors. You might say Amy becomes more than just a rat person from the catacombs, changing from city kid to friend to his savior in Axel's eyes. Though he will always be a little naive by comparison, his genuine gratitude for what she does for him, pulling him out of his bed and helping him get home to his family, is stated many times. And James becomes more than a creepy sleeping figure in the hallway, possibly listening to their conversations. James' transformation is probably the most profound partly because he's an adult man of 29, rather than a child of 11. We hear a lot about his life, starting from when he was a child of the domes. His parents were authorities, but they were killed in a political conflict when he was eight. Or seven, I can't remember. <laughs> he and the others, it sounds like, were sent down into the lower levels. They were presumably told this was a temporary punishment, that they would be let back up one day. But after a while, James came to understand that there was no guarantee. Only some authorities who are sent down get to come back up because they already knew about everything, while regular people are left down there to maintain the blissful ignorance of the domes. Eventually, James started working as a garbage miner, surviving cave-ins and gas leaks. It was during this time he met a medic named Janet, who took care of them, and when he began finding books, using them to learn to read, and selling them to others who wanted to. Unfortunately, he sold one to an undercover agent and was pulled into servicing the authorities once the fight was knocked out of him. For several years, he has lived disguised as a crazy, 
sleeping in the hallways like they do and drooling when anyone looks too closely at him. People like him are hall monitors, trackers, used as hunting dogs to track down others like them, readers and other deviants. However, the work took a toll on him, and by the time he's instructed to follow Amy and Axel, James has started letting his targets slip away. Something I'm curious about is whether James started sleeping in Amy's hallway because she is a reader who the authorities keep tabs on, or if it's because he feels safe near the place where Janet used to live. I'm inclined to think it's the latter. Yes, Amy is marked as a reader based on her file, but at the time of the story, she's gotten her record to look more or less normal. A hall monitor probably wouldn't be assigned specifically to her unless she did something unusual, like walk away from her routine with Axel. At that point, he is sent after them. James admits that he didn't try that hard to catch the children. Evidence of that pops up in the story when Axel spots him in a crowd, something I think he'd normally be better at avoiding. And when he and the guards show up on level 70, just a little too late to catch them. Considering that Amy and Axel sleep for a while before inspecting the door on level 70, we can surmise that James gave them a pretty good head start. After this comes a bit of a gap that he later fills in when he is taking care of the children's injuries outside. He knew he had pushed back as much as he could by letting his last five targets slip away, and it was time to leave or suffer the consequences. The authorities have created a paranoid network of watchers who notice patterns like that. So, he used some of the forgotten stairways, probably a lot like the door Amy and Axel use, and made his way up to the domes. He probably didn't do this years earlier because he would just be sent back down if he was caught, or would be thrown outside against his will, the way he saw others get thrown out when he was a child. Now he makes the choice himself. This marks the first big change for James. He made the choice to walk away from the city despite the odds stacked against him. It's a moment reminiscent of Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away From Umalos. He was brave enough and afraid enough to do it at last. Referring back to how lucky Amy can be, his choice to do so after letting these particular targets go makes it possible for him to follow, find, and care for Amy and Axel in a moment of need. Though not an experienced outdoorsman, James is a forward-thinking adult, a survivor, and observant. When he finds Elton's body, he takes the sunglasses and hat that will help keep the sun off. He also takes the laser gun, which comes in handy when the wild men appear. At first, James looks after the children as a sort of apology for following them, as well as an act of kindness for two people who also wanted to escape the way he did. After a while, however, and with a bit of prodding from Amy, he takes care of them as an adult responsible for two young children. It can be hard to remember that Amy and Axel are only 11, not even teenagers. The text emphasizes that there are a lot of things that are said to them and that they read on signs that they don't really understand due to the grown-up wording. They need an adult to help them the rest of the way. Although James' childhood ended when he was eight and sent below, the true end of his innocence comes when he uses the laser gun to defend the children, killing two wild men. He sinks to the ground and cries and grieves for the life he should have had, sobbing, They brought me down to their level. They brought me down. They brought me down. Hearing this, Amy doesn't understand the full implications of it. But as the reader, we can understand that James has tried not to do bad things, despite the pressure from the authorities above. Yet here he is, firing their weapon at people who maybe once dreamed of a free life outside, who were kicked out to die or survive. He has to confront what the authorities have turned him into, be it a hall monitor or a murderer. While tragic, 
This release is good for him, and he's able to do as Amy says, to become the adult they need him to be. Earlier, he said how surprised he was to have grown this old, and part of that comes from the fact he hasn't had to be responsible for anyone and really act like a grown-up until now. He can be the master of his fate. He can choose to hold the gun so a child doesn't have to. He can keep moving forward and keep the children alive. It's truly wonderful to read about James in the final chapter, when Amy wakes up to find herself in Axel slash Michael's hometown of Mercer. He's clean, he's cared for, he's part of a community rather than the only adult. He's allowed to be a person, not a crazy. More than anything, he can relive a bit of that lost childhood. When he gives Amy her teddy bear, he tells her that he also has one because Michael's mother said it would help with nightmares. The funny thing is, he says, when I told her this morning that the teddy bear worked, she got tears in her eyes. She pretended she didn't, but I saw them. James is perceptive, and eventually will understand that Michael's mother was crying on his behalf as well as that of everyone trapped in the city. But for now, he is as new to this version of living as Amy is. After 29 years, James is finally able to make his own choices, express himself, and smile. The colors of clothing throughout the book are telling. The stark difference between the lower levels versus the domes says a lot about how each part of society thinks about children. Everyone where Amy grew up wears government-provided garments that are purposefully made of brown fabric that won't show the dirt too much. The fact that both children and adults wear this reflects the fact that children are expected to move out of their parents' homes into training dorms at just age 10 and quickly join the workforce, quickly become adults in this dog-eat-dog world. This isn't an uncommon feeling to have towards children when one lives in poverty. Life is hard. They'll learn soon enough. It is also a symptom of how society is put together, with some things being provided and others being expensive. Yes, Amy can go into a supply depot and get a free set of ear guards, but she can't afford vegetable scraps from a fry stand. While level 80 gets the best food, everyone below only has proto-mush and dirty water supplied. And the most expensive foods are basically the table scraps of the people above, though no one realizes it. That aspect reminds me of the documentary The World's Fattest Families and Me by Mark Dolan, which discusses how the island of Tonga gets a lot of New Zealand's scrap meat. On the other hand, the children in the upper levels wear white, and the adults wear whatever pastel colors they like. This represents a sharp difference in attitude, as well as wealth, like how white wedding dresses became popular as a display of disposable income spent on fabric that would show dirt. Children are associated with clean purity, and they will choose colors and professions they enjoy when they get older. Even now, they get to wear their hair how they choose, whereas lower city people all have a standard bowl cut. That being said, there is something bland and dollhouse-like about the domes and the washed-out colors people wear. Maybe that's just my imagination. <laughs> when the authorities send people down to the lower levels as punishment, including children, they are forced into the brown clothes that are a constant reminder that they are just another worm in the dirt with the rest of them, no longer the pampered poodles above. I'll make a note here about how the people in the lower levels tend to be shorter and the ones in the domes are taller though neither group lived to be very old. Amy also compliments Elton's blue eyes, the first light-colored eyes she's ever seen. Aside from Axel's black hair, there aren't very many appearance details laid out in the text, so it seems significant. Something about this society reminds me of what one of my college professors once said regarding North Korea. 
The class was learning about the authoritarian style of governing there, how the people are kept in a constant state of paranoia while depending on the authorities to look after them. Everyone was aghast, but our professor pointed out that if the people stay under control, one might call such a government an effective one. If the point is to keep the people in line, then wouldn't a system like North Korea's be a perfect thing? Of course, my professor wasn't saying that every country should be like that. He just liked to knock students out of their comfort zones. His favorite way to start a class was to ask everyone how many continents there really are, pointing out that Europe is fully connected to Asia, but politically functions as a separate landmass. Anyway, the governing style of the city seems like so many other aspects. Outdated, crumbling, effective at one time, but pointless now that the Earth is livable again. Rather than passing down useful information, history, and skills, the authorities are focused on maintaining rules and structure without knowing why anymore. Axel notices this, pointing out that the buildings inside the domes seem flimsier than the powerful walls of the lower levels. Amy, meanwhile, has no concept of preventative maintenance as a sign of intelligence. And there's no reason to question it when they live well-fed and in charge. The only heavyset people mentioned in the book live in the domes, driving in cars when they don't really need to, taking anti-trom as a relaxer when they live an idyllic life already. Everyone in the city is carefully controlled, though the methods differ, like how the authorities in the domes don't want normal people looking at them, while the authorities in the lower levels make their presence known through cameras placed everywhere. In terms of control, the city is very effective, although it kind of resembles most people's nightmare version of society. Far-right conservatives believe the government already puts chemicals in the water to keep people docile, and far-left liberals believe the education system is specifically designed to keep people as stupid as possible so the big corporations can have their way. In my opinion, the problem is somewhere in the middle, a push and pull driven by ideology and budget, and that seems to be how the society in This Time of Darkness formed. Necessity led to strictness, then power and tradition held it in place. There's also a clear allegory for society in terms of wealth, with a small percent of the population living in respective luxury, with clean water, white clothes, and an expectation of respect and kindness, as well as a certain amount of ignorance regarding people in more unfortunate circumstances. Meanwhile, the people below do the best with what they have, with no expectation of change. They look out for themselves because they're told not to trust others. They learn that in school, it's reinforced at work, and then again on their view screens at home. The level of simple ignorance in the domes is actually comparable to that of the people below. Both are given revisionist versions of what the world is and how it got that way, with one group believing they can't go outside at all, and the other thinking that nothing is below them but underground farms, nothing outside but wastelands. The entire city system is run by various levels of authorities who erase history and teach everyone a false version or nothing at all. There is no history in either the subterranean or surface level learning centers. And adults in both places believe they know best since they've lived a long time without seeing anything different from what they were taught. The city is old. Every level is the same. Only children like Amy and Axel or outcasts like James can really understand the city for what it has become. You could also say that the book is a commentary on city life versus country living. There are so many possible interpretations, and they all still feel topical today, even though the book was written in 1980. Unfortunately for the authorities, maintaining the status quo is coming back around to bite them too. They can't keep the domes from falling apart, 
they have to trust the people of Mercer and other towns outside to continue sending food along the freight lines. They can't negotiate trade themselves since it's all handled by computers now. Basically, Hoover has shown us a glimpse into a society falling apart slowly, unraveling at the seams while no one knows how to mend it or start from scratch. A big question I'm left with is how long has the relationship between the city and Mercer been in place? Axel talks about something nicknamed the rabbit fence that separates his home from the deserted area around the domes. And I wonder if it wraps around the perimeter of the whole city to encase the wastelands. Or does it circle just Mercer? The text implies that it might be there to keep people where they belong, more than animals, since it's twice as tall as a man. But we never learn more about it. The final question I'll dare to answer is this. Where is the outside town of Mercer located? From everything the book gives us, along with Hoover's history of growing up in Ohio and living near Washington, D.C. at the time of writing, I'd hazard a guess that Axel is from Mercer, Pennsylvania. It is located to the west of New York City, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and any one of those could be the city that spread until humanity had to move underground. Pennsylvania is also a forested area with hills, resembling the areas the characters navigate towards the end. What I'm not entirely clear on is where the domes end, where the wastelands end, and where the last 15 miles are, since at the time of their discovery, after the wildfire, the characters find out they made it within 15 miles of Axel's home. With that logic, the original city could as easily be Pittsburgh, which is about 65 miles away from Mercer at the city center. Axel might have ended up somewhere in that vicinity, then was driven a ways through the domes and released at the edge of level 80 to cross the remainder on foot. Through various modes of transportation, the characters might have ended up somewhere near the city of Slippery Rock, which is 50 miles from the center of Pittsburgh and just 15 miles from Mercer. Then again, Mercer looks more north of Pittsburgh than due west. Anyway, whichever city of today that became the city of tomorrow, that's all on the western side. What is to the east? According to James, the city stretches as far as the ocean, and the Atlantic Ocean is really close to Pennsylvania. Also, when Amy and Axel go outside for the first time, he points out weeds like sumac, elanthus, burdock, and ragweed. Sumac is actually an invasive species from China that was introduced to North America by a gardener in Philadelphia, based on my Google search. Elanthus, or tree of heaven, along with ragweed and burdock, are also common weeds in that part of the United States. What I'm left wondering now is, what about the other big cities? Are places like Chicago and L.A. the same? What about the rest of the world? With that final theory out in the universe, let's end the episode, shall we? Thank you so much for listening to all my thoughts and feelings about this time of darkness. Something about the simple yet pervasive world building and the character's hard upward climb towards freedom is really satisfying to read. It's not exactly what I think the future holds, but at the moment, humanity seems to be more on track towards H.M. Hoover's vision than, say, something like James Cameron's Avatar. Check out my Instagram, subscribe, then go vote for planetary health so we don't have to bury ourselves beneath the garbage to survive. Until next time, bye-bye, Earthlings.